You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Hey, can you put that last uh, line up there again? Uh, so it's your breath in our lungs, or it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you. You know, singing that. Um, I don't know, like, and Jay would kind of talked into this a little bit, but uh, I was just so convicted by that phrase. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour our praise to you only. And I was thinking, you know, we hear um, uh, a lot of sermons on stewardship, and, uh, you know, you, don't you love it? Like, you go to a church, it, it always happens the first time, like, you visit a church, or even worse, it always happens, like, the first time you bring somebody who's never been to church before, or hasn't been to church in a long time, you bring them to church, finally, they finally say they'll come, and then it's the week that, like, the pastor's talking about tithing or stewardship on money, you know? Uh, so you hear a lot of sermons about stewardship, stewardship of your money, stewardship of your time, even stewardship of your relationships, um, because in those sermons, you, you get the, uh, you, you know, the pastor will say, and, and this is true, Scripture says that those things aren't really ours to begin with. Like, that's all given to us by God, our money, our time, our resources, so we should steward that stuff for his glory. Well, well hearing this, and, and this is true as well, like, our breath and our lungs, that's not even ours to begin with. Like, that's given to us by God as well. And I'm just so convicted as we're singing this, like, um, I wonder if we, you know, ever had a sermon on stewardship of just the breath that we have. And, and how just like, you know, it's saying it's your breath in our lungs, acknowledging the fact that it's not even our breath to use, like, for our own purposes to begin with. So, as a result, we pour out our praise to you, God, only. Like, how much, if that was true, I mean, really, and, and this, is, this bothers me, like, I think we sing songs a lot of times that say stuff like this. But we're just, I mean, you know, if you like, who is it that sings this? All Sons and Daughters? If you like All Sons and Daughters, like you know this song, you probably don't even have to think about it to sing it in your head. And, and you need to understand, to say what you just said right there, that's a really big statement. Like, so I know, God, it's, it's your breath in my lungs, so I'm pouring out my praise to you only. I'm using my breath for that only. Like, do you realize you just sang that? I mean, can you imagine how significantly different your life would be if that was true? Can you imagine how significantly different, like, our, uh, like, we would look collectively if that was true? Can you imagine how significantly different our influence on campus would be if that were true? Um, Ephesians 5 came to my mind as we were singing this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul writes, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I'm thinking about being a steward of my breath that isn't mine to begin with. It's God giving it to me for his glory, for his purposes. I mean, just if I change, like, some of the jokes that I make with my friends, like, if you change some of the things that you say to your friends, how significantly different. Here's the reality. Everything you say, and people are going to, I'm going to get an email about this, but everything you say is either pointing people to Jesus or pointing people away from Jesus. So, So, like, when you are making a joke or whatever, you're either pointing people to Christ or pointing people away from Christ. And the reality is if you're pointing them away from Christ, or even if you're pointing to a neutral place, I mean, in a sense, you're, you're, you're I guess it's not fair to say you're pointing them away from Christ, so maybe you can't point to a neutral place. But if you're pointing people to Jesus or away from Jesus, to say you're pointing them away from Jesus with your words is to say you're pointing them straight to hell. So think about this. Like what, what, what you just saying, he goes on, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, he says, um, verse 18, he says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, 
for, for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I just feel so convicted about singing that. Maybe it's just me. Maybe God's just trying to do some stuff in my heart, which I'm sure he is. But I feel like we need to consider what we just sang and consider the difference it would make if really this was true for us. We acknowledge that it's his breath in our lungs and that we're going to now use that only for his glory, for his praise. How much different would that make us? So last week, how many of you were here last week? Let me see. Raise your hands. A lot of you. Cool. Um, so I feel like last week was one of those weeks where uh, you either come and you're like, sweet, I'm coming back, or you come and you're like, that was weird, I'm never coming back again. Uh, but um, I, I think last week was very special, and um, I'm thankful for what the Lord did here last week. And, and like Jay Wood or Wag, I can't remember which one said this earlier, but um, the same God that was here last week is here this week as well. And, um, and so I'm excited to begin the word tonight with you. So last week we looked at Revelation chapter 6 verses, uh, what was it, uh, 9 through 11. And that was the fifth seal. So if you're jumping in with us, we're in the study of Revelation, and we're seeing what is happening, what, what is prophesied to happen in the end times. And we got to a point in Revelation 4 where Jesus, the Lamb, shows up, and he's the only one worthy to open this, uh, this scroll that was sealed with seven seals. And we saw historically a scroll sealed with seven seals was typically like a title deed to something or a will and testament. Here we see it's the title deed to the earth. And so... Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, was the only one, or is the only one, who's worthy to open uh, the scroll. So he's now opening the scroll, and uh, he's gotten through the first five seals. So tonight we pick up with the sixth seal, and um, this is Revelation chapter 6, verse uh, 12. So here we go. It says, when he opened the sixth, 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 I can't say that word, sixth seal, you got what I'm trying to say, I looked, and behold, There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. I mean, just picture this happening as you're reading it. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone slave and free. Now notice that list there. It pretty much covers the whole gamut of of people on this earth. It starts with the wealthy and the powerful and moves all the way down to the slaves. So this includes everybody on this planet. Nobody's going to be able to hide from what is being prophesied will happen. Doesn't matter how much money or power you have. Doesn't matter how poor or unnoticeable you are. Nobody's going to be able to hide from this. So it says, Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And then there's that killer question, the question of the night, who can stand? This is the question that I feel like really shapes everything about tonight. There's going to be a few other things we're going to see in the text tonight, but ultimately the question is, who can stand when the day of God's judgment comes? I find it very interesting, those of you who come here on Sundays, uh, that Sunday morning Dr. Jeff began teaching three weeks through Matthew chapter 24. Um, and if you were here Sunday, like, uh, first of all, if you were here a few weeks ago, you, you know that in Matthew 24, Jesus gives his uh, chronological summary of what's going to happen in the end times. And so really, Matthew 24 is a uh, parallel of Revelation. You can, you can read Matthew 24, and, and it's really good commentary on Revelation and vice versa. Um, and so it's interesting that he's teaching 
Matthew 24, as we're studying this, and you heard his sermon on Sunday was essentially asking, are you ready for the end times? And here we are today asking the question, Revelation 6, 17, who can stand under the judgment of God when it comes? I find it very interesting. He and I didn't plan this at all. We didn't talk about this. I find it interesting, though, that he's teaching that. I find it very interesting that you look all over this country right now. There's so many churches, ministries. There's a lot of college ministries, buddies that I'm friends with who are teaching through Revelation right now. We didn't plan this. We didn't talk through this. BSF, some of you are in BSF, um, meets here, meets all over the country. They're studying Revelation right now. We didn't plan that. And as I'm sitting back seeing all these people suddenly popping up studying Revelation, the only thing I can think is God must be through his Holy Spirit uniting the leaders who are leading these studies and these churches because he's got a message that he wants to get across to us. And think about this. I was thinking about this this week. So Revelation, it says in chapter 1, it says it in the last chapter, chapter 22, that this, this book is it's for the church. It's not for non-believers. I mean, it is helpful to non-believers to see this if they will listen, but ultimately this is for the church. So knowing that this was written to the church, why do you think he asked this question here? Who can stand when the great day of God's judgment comes? I mean, I think he's asking it because he wants you to answer it. He wants you to think about this. Like, it, just because you come to church doesn't make you part of the capital C church. Just because you show up to somebody's house doesn't mean you're part of their family, you know? The same is true here. Just because you go to church doesn't make you part of the church. And so he's wanting the people who are going to be sitting, hearing this letter, hearing this read, he's wanting them to ask themselves this question, who can stand when the day of God's judgment comes? He wants you to really think about that. He wants you to ask yourself, will you be able to stand when God's judgment comes? So this week, um, uh, actually last night, so Leslie, my fiance, you know I'm getting married, uh, we, uh, we were going to our second premarital counseling session last night, and um, on the way there, we were talking through, we had some homework that we had to do, and we left a little bit to the last minute, so driving there, we're talking through some of it. And one of the questions was, um, on a scale of one to ten, how sure are you that if you were to die right now, or Jesus was to come back right now, that you would stand, be able to stand before him, like, like that you would be saved? And, uh, and we both answered the question in almost the exact same way. We said, uh, we're sure we're a ten, but... Now, if you've grown up in the church, you, like, you probably have a problem with that answer, and I'll tell you what the but was here in a second. You probably have a problem with that answer, though, because like, you're, you're taught. I mean, aren't we taught? Like, you can know that you're saved, right? We're taught that. Um, if you grew up in a church or churches like I grew up in, you're taught you can know you were saved, that you are saved. You can be totally sure if you prayed the prayer, right? And so, so we both answered, we're a 10, sure, but, and here's what she said, um, she said, I'm a 10, but I can't stop thinking about when Jesus says, uh, enter by the narrow gate. And she was referencing Matthew 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So she said, I'm a 10, but I can't stop thinking about when Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. And I said, I'm a 10, but Matthew 7, 21 to 23 kind of scares me. You read a little further on, and Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one, essentially, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes on to say, On, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many <clears throat> mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's what I want, want to, where I want to start tonight. What about you? Like on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that you can stand through or under, however you want to phrase it, God's judgment when it comes? How confident are you? 1 to 10, 10 being the most confident. How confident are you? And some of you right now, you're thinking, 10, got this. And if that's you, or even if you're like an 8 or a 9, I want to ask you, why, why are you so confident? What is it that makes you think that you will stand in the judgment? You need to make sure that your hope and your confidence is rooted in the right thing. Because according to Matthew 7, 13 through 14, there's a lot of people who are confident in their salvation because they superstitiously prayed a prayer 10 years ago, but they're still walking on the wide, easy road that leads to destruction. And according to Matthew 7, 21 to 23, there's a lot of people who are confident in their salvation because they regularly attend church and they sing the praise songs and they do the churchy religious things, but they aren't yet truly known by Jesus, and as a result, they face judgment. So on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, how, how confident are you? So the, the, the question at the end of Revelation six seventeen, who can stand, is directly related to what we see in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, it's interesting because in chapter 6, we're opening the seven seals. We open the first six seals. And then chapter 7, there's kind of like this interlude, this like sidebar um, by God to John, who's receiving this revelation. Uh, but the sidebar is directly related to the question that was just asked, who can stand under that great day of God's judgment? So, um, and, and notice the big picture. Notice the flow of all this. So chapter 6, verse 17, uh, you get the question, who can stand? And, and then you fast forward to Revelation 7, 9. I want you to see this. Read, read Revelation 7, 9. It says, after this, John's talking, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, clothed in white robes. So 6.17, you get the question, who can stand? Revelation 7.9, you now have this image of all these people standing before God, worshiping God. So the people in 7.9 who are standing before the throne, that means they must have stood through God's wrath. So what happened, or, or, or how do we get from Chapter 6, verse 17, who can stand all the way to Revelation 7, 9, people who are now standing or they stood through God's judgment. And we see the answer in Revelation 7, 1 through 8. So chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four uh, winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. <clears throat> and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin uh, were sealed. Now listen to this. I think the gospel can be explained so well by marriage. Even more specifically, I think the gospel can be explained so well by the process leading up to marriage. 
Like, think about the process leading up to marriage. Typically, like most relationships begin where the dude is pursuing the girl, right? Or at least the girls will think that's how it should be. Uh, you know, if the dude is, you know, yeah, thank you, uh, not passive or anything like that, he should be pursuing the girl. Um, I, I'm, I know I'm about to lose my man card again for this. I, I lose it like every other year for this, but um, whatever. Uh, so I may or may not have watched an episode or two or five of The Bachelor this year. Is anybody watching The Bachelor? Anybody? Come on, raise your hand. Just be honest. Are you watching The Bachelor? Okay, none of the guys are raising their hands. Okay, how many of you guys? Come on, you're in church. How many of you guys are watching The Bachelor? Be honest. Okay, you got a lot of liars here in church. Uh, really? Am I the only dude that, okay, anyways. Um, it's because my fiance makes me watch it, um, right? Anyways, so if you've watched The Bachelor, it really is a stupid, it's, it's kind of like one of those, um, it's like you're driving down the highway and you see this really terrible car accident. And you just, you're, you have to, like, it's so bad and terrible, you have to slow down and you have to watch. You have to stop and look. It really is. It's, 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 the, it's, it's terrible. Um, I watched, uh, I watched the, the most recent episode I've seen was the one where uh, Olivia, do you know who I'm talking about? Those, the really annoying Olivia uh, gets booted off. And, and the way they did it was just terrible. It was like this two-on-one date where there was one rose, and it's like, you know, one of them's going to go, one of them's not. And then... Uh, the dude, what's his name? I can't remember. What? Ben. Yeah, Ben. Okay, I remembered. I just didn't want to act like I remembered. Uh, Ben, he, uh, so he does the whole date with them, and then uh, he takes the rose, and he says, Olivia, come with me. And of course, if you've watched, you know Olivia's like super cocky and thinks like, oh, I got this in the bag. And so she's kind of walking off and all excited and stuff. He walks her off with the rose and says, hey, I'm sorry, I can't give you this rose, which is totally wrong to do. Like, the only time in, in this show, like in all of its history, that the person gets up with the rose and walks off with the girl, it's, he's going to give her the rose, and he doesn't give her the rose here. And so, I mean, even though nobody likes Olivia, like you just can't help but feel bad for Olivia. And then she's standing on this beach. They're on this weird secluded island. And uh, she's standing on this beach, and he takes the rose and leaves her there after he's dumped her. And she can see the other girl, and he then walks over to the other girl and gives her the rose. And uh, it's just the worst. It's like a car wreck. It really is. You just, it's so bad, you have to, like, stop and watch it, but you shouldn't because it's really terrible. Um, this show is so unrealistic, though. Uh, it's so unrealistic because this guy is not pursuing these girls at all. Now, if you're one of these girls and you're thinking, oh, Ben's just amazing, and oh, my gosh, I can't believe he took her out on this amazing date, you have to understand he's not planning any of this, okay? Like, it drives me nuts when uh, <clears throat> he said this the other day on the show. This girl shows up for the one-on-one date, and, uh, and he's like, hey, I've got this great date planned for us today. And I just want to be like, dude, he didn't plan it. Okay, stop listening to this guy. He's full of junk, okay? Plus, he's not sacrificing any of his money for any of this. So there's no pursuit of him involved at all. Yet these girls on the show think that, like, I mean, they get back from the date, and they're like, oh, my gosh, he planned the greatest thing, and he took me to this and that and introduced me to so-and-so. And And I just want to be like, are you serious? Like, you know he's just doing what the producers want him to do. Enough about The Bachelor. Here's what I'm getting to. (laughs) Unlike this made-up fantasy world that you're being fed through The Bachelor, our relationship with Jesus started with him pursuing us. Romans 3.11. Everybody knows, I say this now, I don't think hardly anybody really knows Romans 3.23, but you know, maybe you know Romans 3.23. Not a lot of people understand what Romans 3 says before that. Romans 3.11 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one has understanding, and it says no one seeks for God. It says nobody seeks for God. That means that the only way our relationship with God begins is by him pursuing us. 
So again, I just want to say, I really think the gospel can be explained, especially by how relationships lead up to marriage and then marriage itself. It's a great parallel. And I don't think it's an accident that it works this way. Jesus pursues us. He left heaven and he came to earth. He left his high place at the right hand of God and lowered himself to death on a cross, lowered himself to being buried in a grave. Jesus pursued off pursued us. Then after that pursuit takes place for a while in a relationship, like you're dating for a while and you realize, okay, I like, I love this person. What happens next? Like when you want to take the next step, the next step is, uh, you go and purchase a ring. Um, so, uh, I started ring shopping back in October for Leslie. Um, I had to, uh, that was like, I don't know how far in the relationship that was, maybe like three months ish, whatever. Uh, um, I, I, and, and when we started shopping for the ring, or when I started shopping for the ring, um, uh, I told the people at the, sh- at the store shop, what, what is it, like ring shop, ring store? Okay, whatever. I told the people at the place uh, that the ring had to be really blingy. Um, I, I told them, here's, you know, here's my budget, limited budget, but the ring has to be blingy because I, I want when she walks into a room and like, a guy turns and is like, hey, what's up? Like, it's right before he can say, hey, what's up, to, you know, my student fiance, he's like, hey, what's up? Oh, you know, like, the, gets blinged in the face by the ring. And it's like, okay, I can't. She's not for grabs. Right, turn, turn and walk the other way. Um, so I, I bought the ring. I don't remember when I bought it. But I had it for a while before I gave it to her. And um, some of you were, uh, we took a few of our leaders to Texas Roadhouse that had won this competition we had among our leaders. Are any of you here tonight? One right here, one right there. So y'all don't realize this happened. Uh, but So we're sitting at Texas, me, me and Leslie and the Fowlers, um, and then three or four students. We're s- sitting at, yeah, Havlock right there. Havlock, sorry, my bad. Uh, <coughs> Rachel Havlock. Uh, we're, we're sitting at Texas Roadhouse eating, and um, my back is kind of to where the walking area is. And um, Jen Fowler's sitting across from me and Leslie, uh, and this woman walks up behind us, and Jen's like, oh, hey, and she's saying, oh, hey, to this woman, because obviously she knows her, she doesn't do that to random people, uh, and this woman walks up, and I turn around to see who she's saying, oh, hey, to. It's the woman that uh, sold me the ring, and uh, Leslie's sitting right next to me, and it's been a little while since she sold me the ring, and she, I went in there a lot, so she knew me, and she knew, like, my stupidity and stuff. They had this dog there named Diamond, and I love dogs, so every time I'd go there, I'd play, I'd be like, hey, I'll be with y'all in a minute, I'm gonna play with your dog Diamond for, like, 30 minutes, Um, so they knew who I was and I turned around and she immediately sees me and her eyes light up and I gave her this. (laughs) I was like, she's not about to ruin this. So I kind of did this and I was like, like that to her. I didn't do that. I just was like, oh my gosh. And I turned around real quick thinking, please God, don't let her say anything to Leslie because I've not given Leslie the ring yet. And I was about to, and I was like, oh my gosh, I swear if she ruins this for me, all this happened in like half a second. But I'm like, I'm going to kill this woman in Texas Roadhouse and jam her mouth full of peanuts. And anyways, um, I was just like thinking of all these scenarios that how this could go wrong. Um, but you, you purchase a ring and, and let me just tell you, like, it's crazy buying a ring. Rings aren't cheap. And, and you, you can say that you want to marry somebody all you want, but it really doesn't mean anything until you put your money where your mouth is. Right? So there's the pursuit stage. And Jesus pursued us. You also have to understand that Jesus has purchased you. He's purchased us. He purchased us at the the cross. And you can tell how much something is worth by how much someone is willing to pay for that thing. I'm not saying, Leslie, I think you're, you know, the ring is worth you. You're worth the ring. Whatever. You're worth much more than that. You get it, right? But, uh, right? Did I just say something that I should? Okay. Anyways, what I'm getting at is you can tell by, you can tell how much somebody, something is worth by how much somebody's willing to pay for it. And you need to understand this. 
your, your worth is seen in the fact that God was willing to pay for you, ransom you, through giving up his one son, sacrificing his one son. You need to see that your worth is in the fact that Jesus himself, he didn't come and say, I'm going to write a check for you. He said, I'm going to give my life for you. So you have been pursued by Christ. You have been purchased by Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So there's the pursuit. There's the purchase of a ring, or there's the purchasing moment. I, I swear I didn't plan this to be all peas, but then there's the proposal. So, you know, again, the gospel, I think, is explained so well in, in, in how relationships work. So a guy pursues the girl, then he purchases the ring for the girl, then he proposes to her. So uh, here's how I proposed to Leslie. Um, I didn't want her to see it coming. So uh, she knows that I'm on Monday. Like, I, I study all week for each of these sermons, and then Monday night is like, I kind of have this routine. I go work out in the evening, afternoon, and then I come back to my apartment and I take all of the, the stuff that I've been studying all week and I put it together and, and pray through it and try to make it into this sermon, you know? And, and oftentimes, Monday nights turn into like late nights, early mornings on Tuesday. Um, then I go to bed and sleep in a little bit on Tuesdays. Um, so about 1230 at night on Monday night, um, I, I texted Leslie knowing she goes to bed early. She falls asleep early. And I texted her knowing she'd be asleep and was like, hey, so I want to do this illustration tomorrow at Overflow, but I need to drive to Mesquite. Mesquite's where I grew up. Uh, yeah, I, I needed to drive to Mesquite and get some pictures of um, some of the places that I had, had you know, grown up. I'm going to show them at Overflow. So she texts me that morning. And she's like, yeah, let's go. Or I said, do you want to go with, do you want to go with me? Because we've been talking about going to Mesquite and me showing her like my hometown and stuff. And um, Bachelor fans, the hometown date. Uh, anyways, um, dang it, my man card is like so far gone now. Uh, <laughs> So anyways, uh, she was like, yeah, let's go. And so I picked her up at like 9.15 Tuesday morning, and we drove to Mesquite. And what's funny about all this is she was like unbelievably cranky the whole day. Like, I don't understand. Why, like, why were you? I don't, I don't know why she was cranky. But anyway, she was really cranky. And I'm just kind of laughing on the inside thinking, I don't know. Hopefully she's not cranky after I asked her to marry me. But um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we went to um, first my elementary school and, uh, and took some, <laughs> we, we took some pictures of the elementary school. Then we drove to my junior high, took some pictures there. And it was really funny. At the junior high, I think Leslie was like, do you under, like, you realize you look like a pedophile right now? Like, you're pulling up outside of these, like, when we got to the elementary school, there's kids on the playground, and I'm, like, in my black Honda window, like, barely rolled down, taking pictures, and uh, I didn't realize it, but she's like, you kind of look like a pedophile right now, and she's, like, looking around, make sure we're not being, you know, followed by cops or anything. Uh, so we go to the junior high, then we go to uh, the high school, then we go to my old neighborhood and drive around there, and uh, I'm taking pictures, of course, and not needing these. And uh, then we go to my old church, and my old church is off of Garland Road. It was this church, it's, I've told you, it's not around anymore, Reinhardt Bible Church. And um, the building's still there. Honestly, it doesn't look like it's been touched since I was there in the, like, 80s and 90s. And um, kind of showed her a little bit of it. We couldn't get inside. We tried to, but couldn't. And uh, just showed her the place. And then um, we, we start to leave. And so I start to pull out of the parking lot. And I'm telling you, my next stop was where I was going to ask her to marry me. And so I start to, like, back out of the parking space, and all of a sudden I have this total freak-out moment, like, oh, my gosh, like, my life's about to forever change. Um, and so I kind of just stopped the car, 
and just, I, I think I played it off pretty well. She had no idea I was freaking out. I played it off pretty well that I was like reminiscing, you know, about, you know, oh, <laughs> this church, I haven't been here for so long. So I'm just sitting here like quietly, you know, but really on the inside, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? And I knew it was about a mile and a half away. So I'm like literally sitting there saying, Lord, you got a mile and a half. You have a mile and a half to stop me if this isn't what you want. And so uh, anyways, we drove a mile and a half to this place. And, you know, like most people propose in like a nice pretty garden or, the, you know, cool park. Uh, we were in like this kind of run down part of town um, <laughs> where I, I proposed to her. In fact, while I was proposing to her, there were like three homeless guys. And then this dog came up to us. <laughs> That um, this dog came up, we both love dogs, and this dog was kind of running around stuff, and so we're both like, oh my gosh, come here, buddy, come here. So the dog comes like running at us, and they're like, oh my, it gets closer, and we're like, oh my gosh, that thing has mange. So like, oh, get away, you know? <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I took her to, here's where I took her. So um, back in like 1989, okay, I'm dating myself here, 1989. Yeah, I know most of y'all weren't born, neither was Leslie. Uh, 1989, um, I was like five years old, and uh, so 1989, um, my sister, where we were, used to be a little elementary school. And um, my sister, who's three years older than me, she was going to elementary school there. And so my mom and I would always go pick her up from, from school. And, um, and there was one day that um, on the way there, I got sick or something. And, like, I threw up, like, in the car and out of the car, I don't know, somewhere. And so my mom kind of took us through a, a little back alley, the sketchy little back alley that was there. It's still sketchy, even sketchier now. And uh, I threw up, and then she took me to the parking lot of this school. And we were sitting there, and I had already, I guess, been asking questions about Jesus and, like, um, you know, five-year-old questions about Jesus, whatever. And, uh, and so, long story short, I, I took Leslie to the place where I became a Christian in 1989, uh, which is crazy. And so there's... It's no longer the school. It's like the two different, one of the buildings is torn down, and the other one, it's still the original building, but it's like this church now, like overgrown grass and stuff, and I don't know if anybody goes to church there, but there's this one red bench that's out front left over from the original school, and so we went and sat on the bench, and, and I kind of explained the story of how I came to know Christ, and um, there's really nothing special about how I proposed. I'm just, you know, I think some of you are like, oh my gosh, what, what did he say? Uh, <laughs> No, we're like, honestly, my head's on a swivel making sure we're not about to get, like, robbed or jumped or something. Um, no more mangy dogs going to come up and attack us. But uh, I, I, sh- I shared how I came to know Christ and then um, just shared with her how, you know, it is so cool that, like, when you become a Christian, you're now waiting for, like, this wedding with Jesus in the church. I mean, Revelation 19, which we'll get to later on. And I kind of, I kind of like covered this part of the conversation up with the fact that we're studying Revelation. And I was like, you know, we've been studying Revelation, and so like Revelation 19 uh, talks about the future wedding between Jesus and the church, the groom and his bride. And so it's like now, ever since I became a Christian, I've been waiting for that moment to get married to 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 him. We are waiting for that moment to get married to him. And, and then I was like, you know, a couple months before this, it was really cool. I was studying Ephesians, and all of a sudden, there's a text in Ephesians that just like totally hit me. I'd never really noticed it before. It's Ephesians chapter 1, um, verses 13 to 14. Go, go and turn there. I want you to see this. It says this, Ephesians 1, 13, it says, in him, or in Jesus, <clears throat> in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So I, I read this to her, and, and I, I don't know if you see this in here. Let me, let me read it one more time, see if you catch this. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here's what he's saying happens. Like when you hear the gospel and then you believe in the gospel, in that moment, it says you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee uh, of our inheritance or the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance that's, the, that's to come. I'm reading this a couple months before proposing to her and realizing, oh my gosh, like the moment that I put my faith in Christ, the moment that anybody puts their faith in Christ, it's, it's almost like Jesus is standing before us proposing to us saying, will you marry me? And then when we say yes, it's like the Holy Spirit, that, that deposit guaranteeing what is to come, it's like the ring that he slips on our finger, the engagement ring that he slips on our finger. And, and right about that point, she goes, oh, it's like an engagement. She has no idea what's about to happen yet. Uh, she's like, oh, it's like an engagement. And then right after she says, oh, it's like an engagement, like her eyes get really big. And, um, and then that's kind of when I was like, uh, you know, so I thought it'd be cool to, um, you know, propose to you where Christ proposed to me. You know, I thought it'd be cool to get engaged here twice. And so then I'll leave the rest for just me and her. But um, um, here's why I share that with you. I share that with you because look at what's happening here in Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. It says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have, what's that word? Some of y'all still turning. Sealed. Thank you. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the same word that we see in Ephesians 1, we see here. This is, this is what Ephesians 1 is talking about. These are talking about the same moment. When we put our faith in Christ, we're sealed. Now here, it, it, it describes it a little bit differently. It says, um, it says we have sealed, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So back in the day, slaves or servants, they were marked with a seal on the forehead. Kind of like branding cattle. Like you knew that was your slave, you knew that was your servant. We're talking like ancient times here. You knew that was your servant by branding them on the forehead. Um, so in my fraternity, I, I t- I've told you before, I joined a fraternity. Um, we were, not, it's not a national fraternity. They called us the S's, Sigma, Alpha, Sigma. And, um, you know, I've told you before, I was there. Like I felt like the Lord put me there for ministry purposes. And so, um, you know, it's a typical fraternity. And there's one night, a group of, a, a group of us guys were hanging out. And uh, one of the older guys, he had gotten a little bit inebriated. And uh, so, like, I was there hanging out with them. I was not inebriated. I, I didn't drink then. I don't drink now. And, but I was hanging out with these guys. And he comes in, and he's like, guys, I want to um, get a Sigma branded right there on the back of my neck. And uh, he's like, I think that would be just so cool. Because then everybody in class, all they see is, like, the Sigma. They'll know I'm an S. And uh, I'm like, hey, we can take care of that tonight. And I ran upstairs, got a clothes hanger. And um, I formed it into a little sigma, you know, and then turned on the stove and set it on the stove and heated it up until it got, you know, orange. We knew it was hot. And I was like, all right, come over here, Adam. And uh, two other guys came and, like, held his head, like, right here so he wouldn't jerk away. And he, I mean, he was all excited about it. He's like, sweet, this is going to be awesome. So I take this hanger and I put it on the back of his neck. Well, you know, hangers don't, like, keep their shape very well. So, like, I'm pushing. So it kind of just becomes, like, this misshaped little blob on the back of his neck. So... He now has, like, this big old, like, blob scar on the back of his neck. But um, he's branded like that. And I, 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 I share that because, uh, one, my fraternity guys, they were stupid. We're all stupid. But um, uh, that's kind of the image here, that, that you're sealed. You're, you're, you're marked. And when you say yes to God's proposal to you through Jesus, you're sealed. You are forever marked as his. And it's a guarantee that he's coming back to get you. So there's the pursuit, there's the purchasing of the ring, there's the proposal. And once you say yes to that proposal, it, those who are in Christ, it's now like you're engaged to Christ. 
So those of you who have said yes to Jesus' proposal to you, will you marry me? Will you let me purchase you out of sin and slavery and, and condemnation? It's like you're engaged to Christ. So now we're, we're now waiting for this big wedding, which, again, is mentioned in Revelation 19. But let me ask you this. What do you do while you're waiting for the wedding? Like, where are the engaged couples in here? Let me see your hands raised. Okay, we got, yeah, spread out. So what do you, like, what do you, are you just, like, sitting around waiting for the wedding? No. No, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? Ingrid, what are you doing? You are planning. You are planning, and 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 you are planning. It's the worst, right? I feel you. You're planning, and you're planning, and you're planning. You're getting ready for the wedding. Leslie and I are well into that. I thought, I won't go there. It's, there's a lot of planning. I was going to say, I thought the whole like, registering for gifts was going to be fun. That's like the fun part of the planning. It's not fun at all. You're like, I thought I was like, sweet, I get to carry around this like laser gun and like shoot stuff. And really, it's just exhausting three, four hours of your life. Um, we did get to go cake tasting on Saturday. That was fun. Uh, but other than that, it's just like a lot of work, right? Um, but you, you don't just sit around. You, you plan. And then you, you change your diet. You change your workout. You know, you got to get on the LGN if you know what that is. Um, if you don't, whatever. Uh, you, you prepare yourself for the wedding. What are we supposed to do? Listen. What are we supposed to do while we wait for our wedding with Jesus? I mean, let's back up for a second. You understand you're waiting for your wedding for Jesus, right? If you put your faith in him. So what are you supposed to do? Just sit around? No. Look at uh, verse 4. Revelation 7 verse 4. It says, And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Then you see the list, 12,000 from each of those tribes. First of all, let me, let me say this. 144,000, I think that number is significant to show that this group likely represents the true people of God or the whole company of the redeemed, to quote one commentary. This, and, and people have different views on this, okay? A lot of people will disagree with what I'm telling you right now. Um, I don't know that there's a way we can really know, but here's, here's what I think, and I'll explain more why I think this. But I think this number represents like the whole church. Twelve, we, we've seen that numbers in Revelation especially are often symbolic. So you have 12 times 1,000, and that's like 12,000, and that times 12, and that's 144,000. The number 12 often represents completeness and also is a number that often in Scripture represents God's people as a whole. And so I, I think what we're seeing here is not a literal number, but like God's people as a whole. Some people will say that this is like Israel only or Israelites only. I don't think that. I, I think this represents like the church as a whole. Now you might be thinking, well, all it mentions is Israel tribes there. So how do you get that out of that? Well, let me, let me show you a couple of scriptures real quick. Galatians chapter 3, flip there. Um, Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, there's more context there. I'm just giving you a glimpse. You, you look at Galatians 3.29, and it says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you were to flip to Romans chapter 9, just we're rushing through this here. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, like physically speaking, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. So I really think the 144,000 is referring to like the church as a whole. And, and notice what's happening. You, you see how they're listed out. 
12,000 from each tribe. This looks kind of like what you see in Numbers when God says, hey, number the people specifically. Number all of the men who are fighting men who are able to fight. Like, why does God say that in Numbers? Do you remember why? It's because of Numbers. I'm so glad that uh, everybody answered it once on that. In, in Numbers, uh, they're about to take over the promised land. And the promised land was occupied by all these other people and military. So he's trying, to find, he's trying to get them into battle formation. And that's what you're seeing here. So we're not just getting a, you know, a, a, a number or whatever. We're getting a picture of God's people getting into battle formation, getting ready to go to battle. And here's what it's trying to show us. We, the sealed ones, are in a spiritual battle. As we're waiting in our engagement, we are in this spiritual battle. We cannot just sit back. We must engage in that battle. We must fight off the temptations that are out there to pull us away from the groom. So you have the, the, the pursuit. You've got the purchasing of the ring. You've got the proposal. You've got the engaged season. Then finally there's the wedding, which we'll explore in Revelation 19. And then I think what we see in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17, I think we get to uh, the reception of the wedding, the after party. Uh, let, me, let me just read it very quickly, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll close this out. It says, after this, Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I think this is the reception of the wedding. It's the after party. Revelation 7, 9, it, it describes these people as still wearing white robes. In other words, the bride is still wearing her wedding garb. Um, if you were to flip to Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 7, it says, Let us rejoice, this is talking about the wedding now, let us rejoice and exult and give him, give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what I think we're seeing in Revelation 7, 9 through 17 is the after party of the wedding, the reception. And here's, here's the big picture application here. Three things I want you to see from this text tonight. One is this. We should not be afraid of the coming events if we are in Christ. You and I should not be afraid of this future tribulation coming at us if we are in Christ. And, and, and here's where we see this in the text. Why does Jesus, why does God give us this interlude in chapter 7 in between the 6th and the 7th seal? Think about it. He's been explaining to John and essentially to us, the church, all of the craziness that's going to take place in the end times. And I imagine he sees John's face as he's seeing these visions. He sees our face as we're reading these visions. And he sees how freaked out we get 
And so before giving us the seventh seal, which opens all the other stuff, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, he stops and he says, hey, I want you to see this picture. Look, before any of this happens, Revelation 7, 1 through 8 is what's going to be. Before any of this tribulation happens, you need to understand that the gospel is going to be preached to completion and you're going to see everyone who is in Christ sealed, guaranteeing their redemption in the end. So you can go into this tribulation knowing that you're sealed if you're in Christ. And then he says, also you need to see what's going to happen after the tribulation. So you might die in the tribulation. You might get beat up in the tribulation. You might go hungry in the tribulation. But that shouldn't scare you because of what you know comes after the tribulation, which he shows us in 7, 9 through 17. All of these people who had been sealed standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, victorious. He shows us the church victorious. And and what he's wanting us to see is we should not be afraid knowing what comes. It's going to be crazy, but we know that in the end we will win. Think about Numbers 13. The, The Israelites, they were up on the edge of the promised land. The promised land. Like it had been promised to them. God said, I'm going to give it to you. And, and they send some spies over, and they see that the militaries there are huge and powerful and crazy-looking and scary-looking. And so the Israelites, they freak out. Instead of charging forward in the promise of God, they cower down in fear. And this is a similar moment right here, Numbers 13 moment for us. We can run in fear or we can charge forward in faith. This is the whole reason he gives us this interlude showing the, the coming victory of the church. Second application is this. We cannot just sit around and wait for the wedding. In a lot of ways, being engaged, it's the worst. Um, You know you're going to get married, but you're not married yet, and you have to wait. And the temptation is to just sit and mope and just sit and count the days. But we cannot do that. We've got work to do. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. Do not waste your engagement to Christ. You know, I kind of joke about Not just planning for the wedding, but like preparing, you know, changing your diet and working out for the wedding. Listen, we have to prepare our hearts for this future wedding. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Flip there real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul writes, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, Paul says he was disciplining his body day and night so that he, he, uh, uh, so that he was becoming more like Christ. We cannot waste our engagement with Christ. We have to prepare our hearts. And then third thing is this. It just goes back to that question, who can stand? Revelation six seventeen. who can stand? And... You know, I already gave you the answer, but let me give you more specifically what Revelation 7, how it answers that question. Who can stand? Revelation 7, 13 gives us the answer. Then one of the elders addressed John saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? In other words, who are these that are still standing after God's judgment? And John said to him, verse 14, sir, you know. And so the elder said back to John, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They stood through the tribulation, stood under God's wrath. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who can stand? Who were the ones that were able to stand under God's judgment? And they were the ones who had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And that's that's my question for you. Like, have you done that? Have you washed 
your robes in the blood of the Lamb? Have you washed your life, washed your heart in the blood of the Lamb? It goes back to that picture of the relationship leading up to marriage. Jesus has pursued you. He pursued you by leaving his place in heaven, coming to earth, and dying on the cross for you. He has purchased you through his death on the cross. And then he has proposed to you, got down on that one knee, and he said, will you marry me? And that's our opportunity to then look him in the eye and say yes. And it's in that moment, and only in that moment, that's the, that's the moment that our garments are washed by his blood. That's the moment that he sticks the, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the engagement ring on our finger. And then he guarantees us that he's going to come back. And we will be married to him one day, Jesus and the church, the bride and the groom. And so have you washed yourself in the blood of the Lamb? Will you be able to stand under God's judgment? Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.